Because one of the things that we find when we look at the case studies is that questions play a huge role. And what Ogilvy is talking about in terms of big ideas have to do with big questions. Mm -hmm. Very often the people who do extraordinary creative work have big questions at the core of their work. And they're following big questions. Questions that are inexhaustible, never exactly completely answered. A few weeks ago, we interviewed Michael Hanchett Hansen, author and founder and director of the Master's Concentration in Creativity and Cognition program at Columbia University around the theoretical aspects of creativity. In part two of this interview, we focus on creativity and practice. Michael explains why constraints are a core component in generating creativity, expands on the invalidity of the out-of-the-box metaphor and discusses big ideas. I use a classic quote from legendary ad man David Ogilvy to frame our discussion. We then discuss and explore how as we work creatively, we not only produce creative work, but our points of view develop and our understanding of big questions deepens. Michael draws on many references from Monet, John Coltrane, Ian Curtis from Joy Division, Mozart, George Bernard Shaw, Elton John and Picasso as we discuss and dissect the role of passion, empathy, hard work, research, complex systems, forward and backward loops and how creating solutions for the future often requires us to mine the creativity of the past. I hope you enjoy and are stimulated by this episode of Big Questions on Creativity with Michael Hanchett Hansen. Michael, welcome to part two of the Impossible Network podcast on creativity in practical terms this time, not so much the theory. Yeah. So before we get started, and just to contextualize this, last time we talked about the social material and temporal elements of creativity in distribution and the sorry distribution right we talked about the origins of genius Mm -hmm. we talked about creativity not being out of the box thinking Mm -hmm. but creating new boxes i think you mentioned that there's no such thing as out of the box people create their new boxes you build your box you build your box yes that's the key thing as i mean an educator that's one of the ways we think about it I think we had a little bit of a a divergence in terms of, I talked about Ken Robinson and his views on creativity being educated out of us, and you felt definitely not, and not everyone in the world should necessarily has to be creative as well. And it was quite a lively discussion. Mm -hmm. So I thought we would start this with a recent guest, Marcus Miller, talked to us, a saxophonist musician, jazz musician, talked to us about the importance of constraints in creativity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Could you maybe just reflect on that point that Marcus raised? Because maybe a lot of people don't consider creativity as being related to a constraint. Well, actually, you know, it is, you know, it goes along with what we were talking about last time about not uh, taking it too simplistic face value, the outside the box metaphor, right? Because the box is a constraint. Pat Stokes has done some wonderful work on constraints and creativity. And what you end up with, from her point of view, is that the people who do extraordinary work don't only work within constraints, they actually make the constraints much harder on themselves. And she's done these case studies of people in various um, fields a lot in art and architecture and design, and, and, and she herself comes from advertising. And she's also, by the way, she's a uh, behaviorist, so she, this actually began with study with rats that she came to this conclusion. Yes. That's, a, that's an interesting one. <laughs> yes. It's, it's not the place you sh- most creativity theorists start with. Do explain. 
Oh, explain her work? How that she resulted in focusing on rats. Uh, she looked at variability of responses of rats, and I'm, and I'm probably not going to do justice to her work. But my understanding of it and my reading of her work is that she looked at the variability of responses that rats had as they would hit a lever to get food. And under certain, if, if enough constraints were placed on them, they would find very elaborate routines to hit the lever in order to get the food. And the interesting finding that she has that she's further elaborated is that then when the constraints were removed, the rats who had, grown, who had been trained under that regimen continued to have very elaborate responses, whereas the, the rats who simply got the food when they hit the pellet always just hit the, hit the, hit the lever. That's really interesting. So what she did then is she looked at these case studies of people who do work. And if, if you look at somebody, one of them was uh, Monet. And if you look at the Impressionists and how, what they were doing with light, over decades and decades they went from not worrying about the object but the reflection of light from the object to actually trying to paint light per se. Mm -hmm. And actually, Monet did, you know, the famous water lilies at the later stages when he was actually trying to do something probably not possible, but, but placing an even greater constraint on himself. So she turns the outside-the-box concept completely on its head and says that, you know, we actually, once we get to higher levels of creative work, we are actually working within much, much more rigid constraints. From my developmental point of view and from the systems perspectives I look at, I see what she's doing as what we call a deviation amplifying technique. Mm -hmm. And it is one that, you know, people learn how to, if you eliminate one response, you will come up with other responses. And that is, as you've t your background in advertising would tell you, that's part of a uh, program for an ad tech campaign, right? So I think, yes, the constraints are very important. Okay, well, that's a nice segue to, for me to uh, read something that I transcribed yesterday after watching an old video of David Ogilvy. I started out with Bill Bernbach, but there was some lovely footage. And, and I think this just gives us a context of who, around which we can maybe riff on around creativity in the real world. Because I think a lot of it, speaking personally, is about an attitude to life mm -hmm. and how you approach confronting daily situations, problems you have to solve in your life. So this is, this is what I transcribed. Ogilvy said, be ambitious, raise your sights, blaze new trails, have big ideas. Without big ideas, you will pass like a ship in the night. We have a saying in Scotland, hard work never killed a man. I can't stand lazy people. If you work two times as hard as the person next to you, you'll achieve five times as much. You will climb the ladder like a bat out of hell. I can't stand toadies, people that suck up to their bosses, bully people at lower levels. I don't like office politicians or liars or poachers, crybabies or buck passers. I admire people with guts under pressure, resilience in adversity, imagination, curiosity and grace and human kindness and intellectual honesty. I love people who make me laugh and a special weakness for sailors, skiers, birdwatchers and mountaineers, people with brains. Be happy while you live your life for you're a long time dead. Approach it with enthusiasm and gusto. Be different. Don't be orthodox. Pick other people's brains. Learn to write well with lucid memos. Don't fritter time in committees. Tell the truth and make it fascinating. You can't bore people into buying a product that doesn't interest them. Be special. 
If each of us has someone around us that's smaller than us, we become a company of dwarfs. If we surround ourselves with someone bigger than us, we become a company of giants. Now, there's a lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of... There's a lot there. There's a lot there. <laughs> but was there anything there that resonated with you that makes you consider creativity in the real world as something that you... That, that and we talk a lot about creativity in the real world and, you know, the work that I do. And I'm, I'm a great fan of David Ogilvie's. I actually use one of his, a different one of his pieces in uh, my theories class, which is, has to do with his early work uh, as a sous chef in Paris and how that informed his approach to advertising later. And it was very much about standards and work and really high standards and work. Again, you get back to this idea of constraints because a high standard is a kind of constraint, mm -hmm. right? Again, there are many things that we could go into there. You know, I would go back to actually, you know, and I'm going to kind of try to frame this around where we started with the, with the box concept, mm -hmm. right? The metaphor that's so famous. And one of the things that we think of developmentally is if you're going to think of creativity as always thinking inside the box, like Weisberg and other people have, have advocated, there are lots of ideas in your experience and in your knowledge and your skills increasingly every day, mm -hmm. right? And so it's not so much, or it is what is in your box and how you build it, but in particular, it's how it's organized. And this is where I would go with his idea of looking for the big ideas. And that is often not as much a question of what composes the idea as how it is organized into a point of view mm -hmm. and how that point of view develops over time. Another aspect of that organization, and here I'll go, I want to build on your idea, which I very much appreciate and agree with, of creativity as being an approach to the world. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that we find when we look at the case studies is that questions play a huge role. And what Ogilvy is talking about in terms of big ideas have to do with big questions. Mm -hmm. Very often the people who do extraordinary creative work have big questions at the core of their work. And they're following big questions. Questions that are inexhaustible, never exactly completely answered. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at when you, when you use the term big questions, could you also apply the term big problems? You could, but a problem has the implication it's going to be solved. And a um, question is fed. Questions need to be answered. They, they do need to be answered, but I would... The kinds of questions I'm looking for are questions that are not ultimately ever answered. Mm -hmm. That's what the big question is, right? Little questions are answered. Big questions like, for Frank Lloyd Wright, what is organic architecture? Mm -hmm. For my mentor, Howard Gruber, how long does it take to think? For, um, I mean, a lot of, my, my central question has been, how do people make sense of the world? Those are not fully answerable questions. There are many answers and there are many mm -hmm. other questions. So I think of questions as something you feed and you feed it with the work and this, here again, I'll go back to Ogilvy. I think it's a great point that he makes and something that we talk about. We define ultimately creativity as a kind of work. And as you work, your point of view develops. Mm -hmm. your, your understanding of your questions deepens. And you produce things. Yeah. And that's what we think of as creativity, right? So there are just a couple of things off of that quote. Okay. But it's organic. 
Yes. So it, the if I take if I understand what you said around questions that maybe little questions might be answered but other ones don't, they are is it a an unwrapping, an evolution? Why different perspectives coming together that maybe reinterpret the question and give it new context over time where there's because if we apply your social material and temporal distribution temporal distribution to solving or confronting and answering big questions what that question meant five years ago will be very different to what that question exactly. means today and what it meant 5,000 years ago. And to be dependent on what someone might have created around that question five years ago will result in someone interpreting it and confronting it and attempting to answer it right. in a different way. And if you think about the social, okay, so that's the temporal <coughs> distribution, mm -hmm. right? Think now about the social distribution, which is something else you just touched on, are the different perspectives and the fact that when you put a piece of creative work out, whether it's art or literature or science, it becomes part of a discourse. Yes. And people respond to it. And you get to respond to their responses. And so it is a continual feeding off of what do, do these questions mean and how do they produce other questions. So again, that's what I think in education. It's important that we, it's important that people learn skills and knowledge in some of the more traditional ways, but it's important that they be able to think of those in terms of the enduring questions that people are trying to answer with that, mm -hmm. historically and currently, and as they go forward in their own work and lives. Okay. There's something you said in the last interview that, um, that got me thinking. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things you said in that interview that got me thinking, particularly around domain expertise and creativity mm -hmm. that creativity isn't domain general right it's domain specific right and if i understood it right creativity manifests and results when someone is an expert has spent depth time in an area understands their specific domain and can then be creative so whether it's being a chef or whether it's being an architect or whether it being a, a writer if I understand it right, that leads me to think that its creativity evolves over time. Yet you can have a young genius that can come up with, let's say, the great first album of an artist be never repeated. It, it doesn't seem to be age specific. So can I just get your perspective on that? Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, so I'm sorry, clear. I must not have been precise in the, in the last. Or maybe my lack of understanding because, of what uh, you're saying. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you that both both are true. Because creativity, again, is socially distributed and we're working in complex social systems. Ultimately, what we see as creative as a society is a judgment that is made mm -hmm. by not the person doing the creative work, but by lots of other people. And that may be an early part of a person's work, a later part of a person's work, the entirety of the person's work. It will be different in different cases. That has to do with the alignment of the bigger questions in the, in the society and the reception of the society and the way the work gets integrated there and the individual doing the work. Right. I guess if there's a takeaway I want to 
give you from this idea of participatory creativity and its distribution is that we're thinking about integration of ideas rather than having them. Everybody, everybody has ideas. Mm -hmm. Very few of us even explore a minuscule number of our unusual ideas to any depth of profundity at all. Mm-hmm. But those who Because that do, takes effort. Of course, that's work, right? It gets back to the work and, and the work thing. Yeah. And not only that, you have many more unusual ideas than you would ever be able to, no matter how hard you worked, right? So the interesting part, really, the interesting question is, how do you integrate the new and unusual ideas you have into your point of view? How do you present it to the world? And then how does the world integrate that into the existing canons and domains? Mm-hmm. And that can happen at all kinds of levels. We do see early geniuses who do brilliant work, and the, the early work is considered... Could you give me an example? Of someone who does uh, great work? something that you would bring to life what you just explained. I mean, a great example is the one that my that Edward Clapp has written about up at Harvard, is the singer for Joy Division era, the lead singer Ian uh, Curtis, Ian Curtis yeah. who died very young, mm-hmm. and actually did not produce much work at all, but his influence continues and indeed has grown yeah. since he died. So there's there's an example mm-hmm. of someone whose work it didn't it didn't mature over time, mm-hmm. but its influence has still been extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But then we can look at someone like Picasso and look right. at his early work, but see how his creativity evolved right. to a point exactly in the 1930s exactly. when he was at his, his height. So each case, is, right, each case is unique in its temporal, social, mm-hmm. and material distribution. So basically there's no rules. There's no general... I would say, again, we're, we're in practicalities here, yeah, right? Yeah, we are in practicalities, and so, yeah. We started out talking about some practicalities. Mm-hmm. Don't take the ins- outside the box at its face value. Mm-hmm. Think about building your box and think about how it relates to other people's boxes because that's where it's going to be seen as outside. It's outside other people's. Think about questions mm-hmm. and how you organize your work. Work, and in that work and organizing, and this is where the complex systems comes in, think about loops. Because some loops amplify ideas and some loops stabilize mm-hmm. ideas. So those are important things to think about. It's funny. I, the, it's a great line. Don't think out of the box. Build a new box. Or build your box. Build no, it's not a new box. It's your box. It's your, your you box. You can't build a new box. You have to build your own box. But the very term, because it's used so much in organizational yeah, it is. communications, this hackneyed phrase, think out of the box, because it suggests that there's a box that we're all in, all in the same box, we're uniform, we're standardised. But reality is we're all individuals. So everyone, in following your line of thought, is that everyone should be taught in school that you have your own box to build. Yeah. It's, how build it's how unique you want to build it, how big you want to build it, and the shape you want to create it. Yeah, and what you ultimately, because when you're looking think about those questions that we were talking about, yeah. they're particular questions, right? Like, I want to build my better mousetrap, or I want to change the way art is seen. Mm-hmm. I want to integrate in, in uh, different kinds of art or different perspectives. Let's say uh, 
I want to paint what we know rather than what we see, if you're talking about Picasso and Brock. So there's the little questions, but there's the big question. How do I want to participate in change? Mm -hmm. And that's what your individuality is going to do for you, right? And so some people are going to do that in ways that in the bigger system stabilize the system. They're going to be virtuosos, they're going to be scholars, etc. And some people are going to do it in ways that push the system in particular directions. They're going to do really creative work that, that is groundbreaking. Yeah. Same information, differently organized around different purposes that develop in different loops. Mm -hmm. How do you explain loops in practice when you think about, um, I'll give you an example that I, I can only relate to. You an idea is presented to a creative director and they look at it and they go, hmm, a bit hackneyed, I've seen that before, go mm -hmm. away and push it, take it somewhere else. Is that an example of a loop? You're going back in round the loop and the idea is going to be refined, evolved? Uh, that would be an iteration, I would mm -hmm. say, which you could say, which is related, but it kind of depends. I'm thinking in a, more in a cognitive and experiential level for the individual because we're trying to be uh -huh. very practical here. You can think of it in broader social terms as well. Uh, but on that individual level, it is how you set up your work, and this is where we look at networks of enterprise. So I'll take an example. Like I did my I did my dissertation on Bernard Shaw's thinking about war. And he was extraordinarily prescient at the beginning of the First World War, just made predictions that were incredible for the rest of the 20th century. And he had done that by setting up his work. He was most famous at the time and early in his career for his political work, and his political work endures to this day in the Fabian Society and the uh, Labour Party yeah. in Europe. But he's most famous to us today probably for his theatrical work. And what he did is he treated the same themes and ideas in the two, but he took more extreme positions in his theatr theatrical imagination. Was it Man and Superman, Bernard Shaw? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was great. One of, one of his, yes, I loved many. Yeah. He, he wrote approximately 60 plays and saw them produced during his very long life. But what he was doing, he, you can, as you trace his thinking, he's going back and forth in trying to think of these things in different ways and amplify the ideas and explore them in different ways. So he's setting up a loop. Mm -hmm. He's setting up a loop between the theatrical work and the political work. And they have different aspects. There's, uh, there's a smaller loop going on in a lot of his political work because he's making speeches all the time and people responding immediately. Mm -hmm. I mean, early in his career, he was sometimes had to sneak out for the back because riots would break out. So he's getting a feedback loop there as well. So you're thinking about it as the feedback in your own mind. How do you explore things? How do you do it through your work? That makes me think back. Aristotle said, Aristotle said, you don't persuade people through the intellect, you do it through the passions. And, then, and that should be underpinned by what Bernbach said, which is you need to persuade your persuasion should be grounded in good moral purpose. Mm -hmm. So you talking about Shaw there and what he was doing with his political and theatrical creations, it was very much going to be dependent, this loop would be dependent on the reaction, necessarily the persuasion, but the impact, which was not through people's intellect, but through their passions, how it affected their heart. So is there a facet of a good creative individual is an empathy to be able to empathize with people to be able to reach out and touch their hearts and their souls 
whether it be through political writing, creative writing? That can be. Let me just really emphasize something very important, Mm. I think, that you touched on there, which is the importance of affect in general, or the passions, as as Aristotle is Mm. putting it. And that's something that cognitive psychology has not been very adept at dealing with. Mm -hmm. On the other side, it's very easy to slip into a a mind-body dichotomy, which I would say is not true either. It's never purely the passions. It is the passions come with intellect. They come with ideas. The two are not ever, the two can never be really separated entirely. And so your ideas all come with feelings. Feelings are uh, anchored in ideas. And empathy is a crucial and important aspect of affect, of, of your affective system. A lot of people are just curmudgeons and really revolutionaries and want to change things dramatically and really don't care what the audience thinks. Indeed, a lot of the advice people would give you, in your Ogilvy advice, I think he he said people who try to impress their bosses Mm -hmm. and worried about what other people think. So That's what he said he hated. That's what he hated, yeah, right? That's what he hated. So, and that's right, and that's empathy with your boss, right? <laughs> so it's not. So it's how it's organized. It's how it's well. I think sycophancy, maybe not empathy. I think you're on a continuum there. So, get Michael Ventura in this conversation. So, I think yes, empathy is very important. Affect in general is very important, and we don't do things without wanting to in a very deep, affective as well as cognitive sense. Now, thank you for bringing that up because I think that is one of the points that, as psychologists, we really have to theorize much more broadly. Here's a statement. The future is an idea. Reveling in the past, mining the past, is not genuine creativity. I, the, the future is an idea, I think, was something that Birnbach said. So if you're taking a thought, a piece of work, whether it be in music or whether it be in literature or whether it be in theatre or in academia to a new place, is a fresh idea, therefore it's creativity. Is that fair? Half fair. So I'm going to go back to complex systems, and I'm going to completely un- agree with the idea that, that with the statement that the future is an idea. Mm-hmm. In complex systems, one of the things that we think about are both forward and backward loops, mm-hmm. right? So you are uh, the loops that have been established in your development, your habits, the way the ways you approach things, the ways you see things and perceive things that you've learned over uh, a career of experience, those affect you. But so does your idea of the future. So there are backwards temporal loops. The idea of the future always affects us, what we want to do, how we envision ourselves in the future, what our goals are, etc. Mm-hmm. So those are the backwards loops that occur. Now, here's where I will disagree is the dichotomy the box has lots of resources, and almost all of them will be what what neophilic versions of creativity would discount. They will be things that are traditional and old, etc. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. 
I am now working with a really innovative and interesting project in the state of California on uh, land management around fires, and, and fires are a huge issue with climate change, etc. We hear all the time that ecological pro problems require new ideas, and we need to be creative, or how are we ever going to survive? Agree. Yeah. And that is true to some extent. There will be novelty and technology and technology and ideas involved. But by and large, the things that we need to teach in terms of land management come from Native American practices before the white man arrived. <laughs> they are very, very old. Yeah. They are not new. So the neophilic idea is a way of chopping off your legs at the knee. Uh-huh. If you say that the old is not creative, you have that's basically emptied yeah. your box, and no, you're saying, "Oh, I need to start over with a new with a new box every day." That's not going to work, and that's not going to get you anywhere. No, I, I like I I appreciate that and agree with it wholeheartedly. That sometimes the answer to our problem, challenge, mm -hmm. question, mm -hmm. big question, big question: How do we avert a climate disaster? Might not be a new technology; it might be an old technology. Right. Now, but, let, let me, let me, but there is I, still creativity yeah. oh, and imagination. Yes, oh, absolutely. absolutely. And without curiosity of going back to look at it and say, what if we did this? Well, you're changing how you're currently doing things. But it's not... Because we have policies in, in place right now that are making things worse mm -hmm. in that same way. But let me also talk, use that same example, because I think it's a nice one, to talk about how new technologies do come into play. Uh -huh. Because once you take the practices that clear certain kinds of brush and and make much less dense forests etc and all and and have local burns mm -hmm. all of this makes for more biodiversity stronger trees less more disease resistance etc you end up with stacks of brush <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and if you just have stacks of brush you have a fire hazard so you haven't gotten very far right and it's actually new wood building technologies that are emerging and coming into place to use those resources to make usable building products mm -hmm. that is allowing us to go back to the old yeah that is fascinating but if you if you apply the box analogy to that mm -hmm that these individuals that are working together to cr find a solution to that big mm -hmm. problem, mm -hmm. very specific, mm -hmm. are still building a box, a new yeah. box, their exactly. box. Exactly, exactly. They're not building someone else's old box, even though it's taken from the past and from natives and from their wisdom. Yes, it's you're building a, your box. It's still a combination of exactly. different... You're building your box, exactly. exactly. You're not, you're not, but you're not getting outside it. You are getting outside other people's boxes because there's an assumption that has been made, and to take that example again, that we needed uh, that because fire is destructive, we need fire suppression, a total fire uh. suppression, and for many decades that was policy, and that has led, to, and that along with different lumbering techniques, etc., have led to these very vulnerable forests. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I mean again, you're building a box, but that also then reinforces the. Um, argument you were making about domain expertise that it with only through academia and through knowing your field were you able to come up with a solution because if without the sufficient knowledge of that specific domain they wouldn't be, know to look to the past exactly well without actually some cross 
some cross-cultural studies where you actually are involving native uh, communities in the discussion itself, so a social distribution, right? The historical, there are wonderful archival photos from the 19th century mm-hmm. of what the forest looked like uh, before, as the white settlers were arriving. So yes, there's all kinds of scholarship, et cetera, going into this. I'd love your view on research. There's a great aphorism used in advertising, if I can get it right, that research is used in advertising like a drunk uses a lamppost I for love support, that. not illumination. <laughs> right. Lovely. I'd love your perspective from, from academia on the importance of research in creativity. Research is, I do a lot of research in applied settings. What I say is, I'll go back to the idea of work. Uh, we'll go back yeah. to Ogilvy. We can take yeah. it full circle here. Sure, yeah. Research is, to do correctly, is really, really hard work. And I think our last interview, one of the things you asked me about values, and one of, one of the things I said is the immediate over the abstract. I love that, yeah. And to really look at an applied setting like an art program or a theater program or something like that, or even an advertising campaign mm-hmm. and how they're developed, you have to do a lot of research that is usually mixed methods. You have to actually become embedded in the situation. You have to understand its complexity and then choose the specific variables you have questions about mm-hmm. and research that without losing the idea of the context. This is, again, the distributed view point, right? And so most things, and again, I have done uh, work in advertising-related fields, and when you get a, a, a memo or a draft of, of the research on your specific product or issue, etc., it's pretty dry and it is pretty reductive. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it requires an extraordinary amount of interpretation, and if the people on your advertising team happen to know the market and the field and the other products extremely well and understand the consumer process well, they may be well interpretable, but they could easily lead you astray. Mm-hmm. So yes, I love that quote. That's, mm-hmm. that, that, that's lovely. Okay. I always tell people, on, on you know, psycho- psychological research, a lot of the um, conferences I go to, we will have whole sessions on the pressures on psychology to speak beyond its warrant. Uh-huh. A lot of the popular press, etc., they want to know, uh, well, what are the bottom line? What can we do with this in ways that eliminate all the caveats that the researcher would have put into the write-up, right? And all of a sudden, a very nuanced piece of neurocognitive research becomes, we found the location of love in the brain, or, or mm-hmm. we found, we found the, the neurotransmitter of love, or, or whatever. And so I like to tell people to never lose your common sense. (laughs) There are no silver bullets in the world. (laughs) If you think you found one, you're probably on the wrong path. (laughs) We're coming towards the end, but I want to ask you your point of view on a word that's used very loosely and probably too often, which is talent. Mm -hmm. What is talent? Talent is a innate ability or capacity and interest mm-hmm. that you see in very, very young children. There's been a lot of research on talent. 
and a lot of really interesting research. And most of that research will tell you that people who do extraordinary things, it is talent plays a very small role. Mm-hmm. But talent is definitely there. On the transatlantic flight I was just on, I, I was I watched a Rocket Man about you Elton, Elton John. Got to watch that carbon footprint. Huh? You got to watch that carbon footprint. It's true. Yeah. It's true. You do. And you take someone with his... A great musical, movie, by the way, Rocketman. I, I yeah. enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it was wonderful for the flight. But you take someone with that musical ability, that talent, mm-hmm. that innate ear for music, yeah. and that certainly plays a role in development, right? But without the practice and the application and the social network, right, you don't actually do anything with it. The... Tentative consensus of the researchers who work on this, and I'm not one of those researchers, but but I know their work pretty well, is that talent seems to be something that leads you to the work. Mm-hmm. We like to do what we're good at, and so we do it more, and so we get one of those positive feedback loops going. But it doesn't usually determine whether you succeed. So if we were to combine the word talent with creativity, um, and a creativity applied... Elton John was an example of talent combined with applied creativity to build his own box. With Some, a bit of help from Bernie Taupin, obviously. Right. So in extraordinary luck in, in meeting Taupin yeah. early in the process, right? And having that stabilizing relationship throughout his career. Yes. An extraordinarily important social distribution of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the work. With long-term work, with a very long career... Lots of ups and downs, but a very long career, and you know, lots of work. I mean, if you if you if you watch one of his concerts, it's lots of work. A long concert, yeah. Hopefully, I'm going to get to see his, one of his last concerts here in New York oh, next really? year. So, if we take that to bring this full circle, not to Ogilvy, but I never thought I'd end up talking about Elton John in a conversation about creativity. But well, no, no, no. I think it's great, but. Probably would have gone David Bowie before Fel and John, but yes. if we were to that, apply... That, that, that just happened to be what, I, what I'd say. But if we were to apply the social, material, temporal elements to that, to the Elton John trajectory from those early days of talent combined with creativity, does that bring it all together? Does that Because com- you, can, you, can, you can apply the, the social impact that the context of where he was influenced by and what he was influenced by in his early days, you can apply the material in terms of presumably the tools he was given, and you can apply the temporal of how his, let's say, his canon evolved over time. Yes, absolutely. And you can you can see how the box was built. Mm. Right. And this is true. Musicians are really good examples of this, mm-hmm. by the way. I mean, not, not that they are so different than other examples, but they really kind of speak to this idea of talent. Yeah. Because it's not, we assume everybody can speak, and therefore we tend to assume they can write. Maybe that may or may not be mm-hmm. true so much. But music seems to be a little different. And so one of the things that, you know, I often have my teachers who teach music is to use the, the case of John Coltrane. Yeah. And to have their students look at exactly how much he practiced. It is stunning mm. as a young man how much he practiced. 
and, and develop that talent. And you find this in musicians a lot. Mm. Can we maybe then finish off by saying, is it convenient to say that great creativity is a combination of talent and an immense amount of hard work? True, but, you know, some people who aren't so uh, markedly talented do an immense amount of hard work and make big marks on the world. I would, I would lean toward the work. Okay, all right then. So a good uh, final reinforcement for the Latin motto of my school, Labor Omnia Vinci, work conquers all. Mm -hmm. There you go. There you go. Thank you very much, Mark. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.